Um, it's ultimately a banal truism that every musical performance is unavoidably creative in the sense that if the analysis is sufficiently fine-grained, it's inevitable, it's bound to differ from any other performance in some way. But such a, such a statement collapses together significantly different ways in which the term creative can be used. Residually, and perhaps unhelpfully, simply to indicate that there are features of some kind not found in any other performance. Combinatorially, to indicate that while none of the elements of a performance belong to a new category, they appear in an arrangement that hasn't previously been encountered. Or more radically, to identify the kind of striking innovation that seems to come from nowhere. In this talk, I'm going to examine some different ways in which musical performance can be said to be creative, explore the ways in which that creativity is distributed around minds, bodies, and instruments, and finally consider the specific circumstances of contemporary concert music in which the creativity of performers and uh, in which the creativity of performers engages directly with the creativity of living composers. First, though, it's worth recognizing that not all musical performance takes creativity in any form as its aim. The contemporary preoccupation with creativity in the Western classical performing tradition is the consequence of a specific aesthetic outlook and particular commercial pressures. And at other times and in other musical traditions, it is unchanging sameness that performers are trying to preserve. This is easy to overlook because of the tendency to focus only on music as art, rather than as an integral part of a wider range of other social functions. When music is used in rituals, in coordinating physical work, as a reassuring greeting song in music therapy, or as a form of tribute, the overwhelming imperative may be to avoid creativity or novelty and to aim at unvarying replication so as to preserve the social or psychological function that the music accomplishes. The performances of so-called tribute bands are interesting in this respect. Here, for example, is a clip from an iconic rock guitar solo, the solo from Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. except that this isn't Led Zeppelin, but a band called Led Zepp Again, a Led Zeppelin tribute band who not only tour around the US playing more or less note-perfect copies of Led Zeppelin songs, but have even released an album of these replicas. Here, for comparison, is the Led Zeppelin original, distinguished by its rather different recorded sound. There's more than 30 years between these two recordings, but otherwise, the note-for-note -note identical original of which what you just heard is a copy.
it's quite striking that what we hear in the first one that I played, i.e. the copy, and which sounds like kind of spontaneous improvised guitar playing, is actually a note-for-note -note copy of uh, what you just heard um, in the Led Zeppelin original. So why does classical performance in the West place such a strong emphasis on creativity, and to what extent is this a permanent and ubiquitous feature of the culture? Contemporary circumstances, and most obviously the recording industry and broadcast media, place a huge emphasis on the distinctiveness of performers for straightforwardly commercial reasons and as part of an ideology of aesthetic and cultural authenticity. Since the overwhelming majority of concerts, recordings and broadcasts serve up a more or less static musical repertory, the obvious way to attract an audience or sell recordings is to focus on the personal identity and creative attributes of the performer. This emphasis on creativity in performance is strongly bound up with the institution of the public concert, which emerged in Europe around the middle of the 18th century, and more recently with the development of the recording and broadcast industries. So we're really talking about a state of affairs that is only about 250 years old. In what way, then, is performance in the Western concert tradition creative, given that the score seems to specify what the performer should do? The obvious response is to point out that the same score is plays, played in sometimes very different ways by different musicians, and that these expressive differences constitute an important kind of creativity. But there are significant, sorry, but there are significant difficulties in agreeing on a definition of expression in performance that will support such a claim. Here, for instance, is the score of the opening of the aria of, from the Goldberg Variations by Johann Sebastian Bach. And in a moment, I'll play just the start of Glenn Gould's recording of this music from 1981. Gould has been widely recognized as one of the great musicians of the 20th century, and I doubt whether anyone would want to question his status as a creative musician. But what exactly is the nature of his creativity when so much of what we hear is specified in Bach's notation? So here's a clip of his performance.
Well, the standard answer, and in many ways it's a perfectly good one, is that it's the extraordinarily subtle shaping of time, dynamics, balance, and articulation that constitutes Gould's creativity, all of these being attributes that are not specified in the score other than in very general terms. Perhaps then, the creativity of performers is encapsulated by the ways in which they depart from or add to what is indicated in the score, since that, after all, is what they have brought to what is already provided by the composer. But there are various problems with this definition, the most obvious of which is what on earth one does with music that doesn't have a score. Here, for instance, is Billie Holiday singing When You're Smiling and doing so in a way that is clearly creatively expressive in very much the same way as Gould. But in this case, there's no score against which we can measure what, Billie, what, what Holiday's creative contribution amounts to, though we can hear it just as powerfully. So if departures from or additions to the score really won't do as a characterization of expressive creativity in performance, perhaps the idea that expression is a transformation of or a departure from some kind of norm or standard still has some mileage. In the case of Gould, there is a score to appeal to, though it has to be said that most people have probably never seen a score of the Goldberg Variations and yet still hear the playing as creative and expressive. And in the case of Holiday, we can perhaps propose some generally accepted norm or default version of When You're Smiling, a kind of inexpressive prototype against which her extraordinary performance is heard. To what extent, then, can these transformations or departures be regarded as manifestations of creativity? Creativity itself is notoriously hard to define, but most definitions resist the inclusion of phenomena that are either accidental or completely determined. Margaret Bowden, for example, who will be the next speaker in this series, has characterized creativity as the ability to come up with ideas or artifacts that are new, surprising, and valuable. What light does this definition shed on creativity in performance? First, a distinction might be need to be drawn between expressive features of performances that can be regarded as the unconscious symptoms of underlying cognitive processes and those that are the result of deliberate interpretative choices. It would be hard to argue, I think, that the former, these unconscious symptoms, are creative components of the performances, since they seem to be an unconscious and perhaps even involuntary consequence of the performer's parsing of the musical structure, though it's still defensible to regard them as expressive. A considerable body of research has shown that the timing, dynamic, and articulatory features of musical performances express performers' understandings of various aspects of musical structure, even when the performers themselves profess to have no conscious awareness of those structures, just as the expressive or prosodic features of speech can reflect linguistic structure without conscious awareness. By contrast, though, consider two performances of this Chopin prelude, 
Uh, the score, sorry, it just about comes across, as is typical for this kind of, uh, for Chopin's music and for a lot of 19th century music, the score specifies a considerable amount in terms of notes and rhythms and so on, but very little, as you can see, in terms of expressive characteristics. It says, you can't read it, but it says espressivo up there, and there are a few dynamic markings, not very much more than that. A professional pianist with whom I collaborated 20 years ago gave six performances of this prelude in the course of about an hour. And here are the timing and dynamic profiles, just for the left-hand chords in this case, extracted by computer from two of his performances. So just to orientate you on this graph, this, the, the, the blobs down here, whether they're filled or open, are timing, chord-by-chord chord timing profile for the performance, and the triangles, whether open or closed, are um, the chord-by-chord chord dynamic profile of his performance. So this is a, a minutely detailed record of his performance. And the, the two things, I think, that I want to just point out here that you can see are, first of all, that there are some aspects of these two performances that are remarkably, actually astonishingly consistent. So the timing profiles, at least for the first four bar, four bars of this piece, which is this part here, um, are virtually, you know, they lie on top of each other, essentially. But by contrast, there are also some things that are radically different between these two performances, so that the, um, the dyna dynamic profiles are almost the inverse of one another. One of them goes more or less like this, and the other one goes more or less like that. Now, the pianist, hadn't, he hadn't been asked uh, to attempt deliberately different interpretations, nor had he been asked to adhere to a single view. These were freely given and spontaneously varying performances. Analysis of the two performances demonstrated significant differences between them, as I've just pointed out, amounting to distinct interpretations of the music that bring out different aspects of the music's structure and, and, and its overall emotional tone, perhaps. In this case, it seems rather more obvious that these distinctions do constitute a creative use of expression in performance. Though it's worth noting again that there was no evidence that the performer was conscious of trying to articulate these different interpretations. When I pointed out to him sometime later when I'd done this analysis that there were these two structural interpretations of two of his performances, uh, he, he's an extremely nice and accommodating person. He said, mm, yeah, that sounds reasonable. <laughs> but as if he had had no kind of idea that this is what he was doing. And in fact, between the performances that he gave, I asked him to comment on what he had been thinking about whilst performing. And they were mostly quite extraordinary kind of narrative images about all kinds of things, including one, after one performance when he said, hmm, I wonder what Eric's family is like. <laughs> that he claimed that that's what he had been thinking about whilst playing this Chopin prelude. So if we accept for the moment that creativity in performance can be understood as transformations of some kind of cultural norm, which in some cases may roughly correspond to the score, are there limits to the kinds or extents of the transformations that we regard as creative? When does legitimate transformation turn into waywardness, eccentricity, or wanton destruction? As Bowden's definition of creativity makes clear, and here it is again, the matter of what is considered acceptable creativity depends crucially on values. And it is therefore a matter of changing cultural and historical value systems rather than being driven simply by objective properties of performances. 
Here, for example, is Gould again, playing Mozart this time, the first movement of the piano sonata K331, at about half the speed at which anyone else has ever recorded it, and in a way that I think you will hear is, in some sense, deeply eccentric. Uh, is this creative or is this just a weird aberration? Um, the American musicologist Richard Taruskin has claimed that Gould's performances have become celebrated not so much for their brilliant innovation or creative uniqueness, but because they correspond to a particular cultural preoccupation, what Taruskin characterizes as modernist performance, with its focus on a particular conception of structure and integrity. And in a book on Gould, Kevin Batsana has suggested that Gould's apparently incomprehensible initial tempo in the first movement of the K331 sonata is part of a deliberate strategy of integration and unification in which the elements of the theme, it's a theme and variations movement, in which the elements of the theme are progressively brought together across the succeeding variations which become increasingly fast and loud. Contrary to the view of Gould, as, of Gould as wayward, Taruskin's perspective would explain the critical endorsement of his recordings as the consequence of his adherence to a culturally favored aesthetic norm. In a similar fashion, historical recordings demonstrate powerfully how attitudes and approaches to performance have changed over the century or more of recording history. What may at one time be regarded as the norms of expressive performance turn out to be far more fleetingly historically specific, raising challenging questions about the status of supposedly fundamental psychological principles. Here, for example, is a recent highly regarded recording of Schubert's song An die Musik, sung by Bernarda Fink. beautiful and perhaps unremarkably beautiful, but nonetheless, beautiful singing, let's say. And here is a recording from a hundred years ago by one of the most celebrated singers of her time, Elena Gerhardt. Thank you. 
those differences clearly, um, not only in terms of overall tempo, but in total kind of vocal approach to this music. Um, and to some, these differences are completely unacceptable. Here, for example, is an extract from a review by a man called John Austin, I don't actually know who he is, of the reissue of this recording in 2000. Arthur Nickish, who is the accompanist, and soprano Elena Gerhardt were musicians of great renown in their day, but their 1911 performance of Andy Musik is frankly appalling. Nickish plays the opening accompaniment quickly, then slows down to half speed when Gerhardt enters. What follows for nearly four minutes is not so much a tribute to music as a travesty of it. Altogether, there is little offered by the early 20th century generation of singers that I should like young singers of today to hear. So utterly written off. I think it's absolutely astonishing recording myself, but um, clearly um, for this person's ears, this is a kind of singing and piano playing um, that has become completely anachronistic and um, you know, unacceptable. So the examples of Gould and Gerhardt highlight the tricky and very fluid boundaries between the normative, the creative, and the incomprehensible, and the shifting cultural and historical context within which such judgments are necessarily made. The study of recordings also raises pressing questions about the effects of influence on the creativity or distinctiveness of performers. With the advent and now global reach of recordings, broadcasts, and the internet, performers potentially face overwhelming exposure to the sound of other people's interpretations. There is a whole range of questions about whether and how performers try to develop their own distinctive voice and how they work with or resist the influence of others. The possibility, in other words, that creativity should be regarded as a distributed attribute of a musical community. Some commentators have seen the advent and rapid development of the recording era as fundamentally negative in its impact on creative performance, pointing to what they see as the homogenizing effect of internationalization and globalization on local cultures and traditions of performance. There's too much to discuss here for me to do more than signal the issue, but I see the situation rather more positively. Much the same kind of moral panic greeted the arrival of the internet, television, the novel, even the advent of printing, all of which were announced as being the end of civilization on very much the same grounds. If we leave behind the unnecessary and false view of recordings as somehow authoritative, the fallacy that is summed up in that kind of record reviewer's phrase, the definitive recording, then there is every reason to feel hugely excited by the ever-expanding universe of different approaches that, that the accumulation of recordings represents. Now, I've deliberately, if I suppose a little perversely, chosen not to talk about the most obvious form of creativity and performance, namely improvisation. But I'm going to use an example of improvised performance to talk briefly about the instrumental and embodied nature of creativity in performance. Playing music is not the kind of abstract and conceptual activity that too many cognitive models have portrayed it as, but an intensely physical activity in which the relationships between bodies and instruments loom large. 
anyone who has learned to play an instrument will be all too aware of the frustrations and difficulties of that relationship, the discomfort and awkwardness and the failure of either your own body or the recalcitrant instrument or the, uh, to, to comply with what it is that you might want to do. But that same physicality can also be a huge source of pleasure, reward, and creative excitement, as is evident from this clip of the great American jazz pianist Cecil Taylor in the middle of a about a six or a seven minute, I'm only going to play a, uh, one minute at the most, of a free improvisation um, as part of a film made in 1981. So he's about, I think he's in his early 50s at this stage. He's still alive. Notice the manifest excitement and almost erotic intensity of his relationship with the instrument and his own body, seen in the singing, speaking gestures of his face, as well as distributed throughout the rest of his body. And here I just have to go to a different... So here's this clip. I'm sorry, it's rather distorted at the top just because it's recorded off YouTube. <laughs> see both uh, extraordinary um, you know, physical power and passion and, and, and uh, uh, force and also this extraordinarily um, subtle in relationship with the instrument. Very, very powerful playing. So equally, but rather more poignantly, here is the great improvising guitarist Derek Bailey in a track from an album released in the year 2007. The album was called Carpal Tunnel because Bailey was experiencing problems with his right hand, which he attributed at the time to carpal tunnel syndrome. In fact, sadly, it turned out to be the onset of motor neurone disease from which Bailey died within months of the release of the, re of the album. Here is Bailey improvising and talking, and the talking is part of the improvisation, of course, improvising and talking, and listen to the extraordinarily creative attitude that he adopts in relationship to what most people would regard simply as an impediment. So I've transcribed him because it's at times not totally easy to hear what he's saying. Now, you might find the playing a bit... Uh... Let's say desultory and uh, inaccurate, but I've got uh, carpal tunnel syndrome of my right hand, and I can't use a plectrum, so. I'm using a thumb, and I'm working on it. 
but not using a plectrum has turned out to be quite interesting for me. When I consult medical people about this, they all say I should have an operation. But I'm more interested in there. Uh, trying to find a way around it. Finally then, as I indicated at the start of this paper, let me say something about the interaction of performers with composers. With the exception of Billie Holiday, Cecil Taylor and Derek Bailey, I've so far focused on performers playing the music of composers who are long dead. But what kinds of creative possibility are opened up when we turn to living composers and performers? This is the specific focus of a project in which I'm involved as part of an AHRC research centre, um, the Centre for Musical Performance as Creative Practice, which is a collaboration between the departments and faculties at Cambridge, Oxford, King's College London and Royal Holloway. With the project research fellow Mark Doffman, we're looking at the distributed and collaborative creative practices that take place in the interactions between composers and first performers of a variety of pieces of new music. And for today, I want to talk about just one extended incident in one of those pieces. The piece being an hour-long new piece called Tongue of the Invisible by the Australian composer Lisa Lim, written for baritone, improvising pianist, and 16-piece ensemble, which was premiered in Amsterdam last summer as part of the North Holland Festival. The work is interesting for the way in which it mixes completely notated music with improvised and semi-improvised elements, since in doing so it clearly invites or even requires the creative input of the performers. And we followed the kind of the, the, the creation of this work from relatively early, early stages in the compositional process. Um, we had interactions and discussions with Lisa Lim, the composer, through to the kind of workshoppy type uh, interactions with the performers that she involved herself in in the creation of the piece and then through the re we, we videoed and uh, audio recorded and interviewed the, the performers during the whole rehearsal process leading up to the first performance in Amsterdam and a subsequent performance in Cologne. The improvising pianist for this commission was Yuri Kane, a distinguished American jazz musician who has become well-known for his semi-improvised interpretations, adaptations, or realizations, you might call them, of music by Wagner, Mahler, Mozart, and Bach, as well as more straightforward jazz and klezmer performances and recordings. The ensemble that commissioned the music, the, the piece from Lim, is the outstanding German contemporary music ensemble Musikfabrique, together with their guest conductor, André de Ridder. And the commission was to celebrate the 20th birthday of the ensemble, which was formed in 1991. I want to focus on a particular episode in the preparations for the premiere performance and its ramifications as a way of, of illustrating the complex and highly distributed network of agents and processes that contribute to this creative performance. The sixth movement of this eight-movement piece is one of the most unspecified in the score, consisting simply of the following instruction. 
Okay, so the score consists of an instruction. It's called between the pages of the world, and the instruction simply reads, solo improvisation by, by pianist, brackets, melodica ad lib. Melodica is a small keyboard instrument that is bl a blown keyboard instrument. So it's got a keyboard, and you blow through it, and it has um, reeds, and it makes a kind of harmonica-like sound, I suppose you could say. Um, and so melodica ad lib, for those who don't know this kind of musical um, jargon, means you can use the melodica if you wish. And Yuri Kane, who had not played the melodica before this commission, he, he bought one specially for the, as it were, for the, the rehearsals and performance, had this melodica on his knee and played it occasionally whilst also playing the piano. So it says solo improvisation by pianist, melodica ad lib, based on materials from movements two and four, earlier movements of the piece, and this little kind of snippet of music between square, back, square brackets is um, Lisa's kind of reminder of some of the material which is common to both movements two and four. This is actually a basic kind of thematic element that appears throughout the hour-long piece. Now, over three days of rehearsal, Yuri had developed a particular approach to this movement, resulting in an improvisation of around five or six minutes that ranged from fiercely physical and noisy elaborations of this reference material to a rather kind of otherworldly quiet ending in the very upper register of the piano. By chance, the day of the Amsterdam premiere was Yuri's birthday, and at the start of the final rehearsal that afternoon at the Amsterdam concert venue, the musicians did what friendly professional musicians often do, and that is, out of the tuning note given by the oboe, they burst into a kind of apparently spontaneous rendering of happy birthday to you. And I'll just play you the, the ending part of the musicians playing happy birthday to you to Yuri, who is there seated at the piano, and just have a look and listen at what happens. This is Andre de Ridder, the key, the the conductor. Lisa Lim, the composer, is in the room but actually not visibly present and this is the rest of the ensemble. Okay, and then they get back to their kind of professional personae, as it were, and get on with um, tuning up for this final rehearsal. And just in case you didn't catch it, this is what they say to one another. So Yuri says, oh my God, it's embarrassing. Thank you. It's a pleasure to play with you, because he is a guest, of course, in this ensemble. They, the permanent ensemble of Music Fabrique is roughly 16 musicians who are, uh, you know, an they're salaried musicians. They always play together, and they have various guests come along to play with them. So it's appropriate for him to say, oh, my God, it's embarrassing, thank you. It's a pleasure to play with you, because he's not really part of them, in a sense. Thank you. 
and then Andre Derrida, who is in a sense also a guest in relationship to this ensemble, because he's one of, their, one of their guest conductors, says back to him, happy birthday, and then this kind of chorusing of happy birthday. So what I just want to emphasize is, as I say, the guest-host relationship between Uriel and the rest of the ensemble. They're making a warm and friendly gesture towards him by playing happy birthday, and he's express expressing his kind of touched appreciation. The rehearsal proper then started and culminated in a complete run-through of the piece. And this is the end of the improvised, of this improvised sixth movement that I've been talking about, the score of which I showed you a moment ago. Listen out in this very last moment of Yuri's improvising, listen out for a recognizable musical reference. So, as you may have heard, and in a moment of really beautifully judged kind of creative elaboration, Yuri deftly works in, to the end of his improvisation, a reference to happy birthday. The little phrase he plays would co correspond roughly to happy birthday, dear Yuri, we suppose, or dear someone else perhaps, as a way of paying back, in a sense, the compliment that the ensemble had just paid to him earlier in the rehearsal, and at the same time as a way of achieving a rather striking but incredibly simple transformation of the melodic material on which his improvisation was based. And it's interesting also to see how the musicians here recognize this thing and turn to, you may have seen it, they turn to one another and smile as if as a, in recognition of this rather nice twist that he, he's introduced. He had never, there had been a number of rehearsals of this movement, and of course there had been no reference to Happy Birthday during those. It would, there would have been no reason for it to occur to anyone to play a bit of Happy Birthday within that movement. Similarly, at the public performance of the music that evening, he made no reference in his improvisation to Happy Birthday, since to do so might have seemed simply weird and baffling to any audience members who noticed it, or a rather kind of exclusive in-joke restricted to Yuri and the ensemble, neither of which might have seemed at all appropriate. Now, the story isn't quite finished. Two weeks later, what was effectively the second premiere of this piece took place in Cologne, which is the ensemble's home city. This performance in their home concert hall and introduced with a highly kind of flattering congratulatory speech by the no less than the president of the Bundestag was explicitly the ensemble's 20th birthday celebration, followed by a birthday after concert party, in fact. So during the afternoon, there had again been a final rehearsal with a full run-through of the piece with nothing special to report. But when it came to the public performance in front of a big audience, 
This was what took place at the conclusion of Yuri's improvisation in Movement 6. It's a rather grainy video taken with a camera just amongst the actually very large audience that were there. Uh, which is, so again, same sort of place in the movement. So here, in a gesture that arguably, I suppose, congratulates the ensemble on the achievement of reaching their 20th birthday, Yuri again wove in a happy birthday that is primarily directed to his hosts, but was also actually picked up by some attentive members of the audience, as a reviewer of the concert pointed out. A creative transformation in performance to all appearances hit upon in the moment of inspiration turns out to have, to have a complex history that brings together a network of relationships that includes personal history, Yuri's birthday, compositional specification and indeterminacy, the score and what it does and doesn't specify, social and institutional arrangements, hosts, guests, and the age of the ensemble, and the affordances of particular pitches and rhythms, the way in which the melodic material of the movement can accommodate or be transformed into happy birthday. To conclude then, creativity in any domain takes place within a complex physical and cultural environment, and this context not only provides the substrate within which creativity can grow, but also is the arbiter of whether what does grow is viewed as creative. Whether an activity, idea, or product is judged creative depends in part on the effect it produces in others who are exposed to it, and in particular, influential arbiters of taste. Creativity is more often than not attributed to individuals, but must be understood as socially constructed across a complex network of material objects, social structures, technological systems, ideological formations, human bodies, and cognitive capacities, all of which have their own kind of agency. Margaret Bowden points out that in her, her own definition of creativity as new, surprising, and valuable, the value of something new and surprising can only be socially defined. Because creativity, by definition, involves not only novelty but value, and because values are highly variable, it follows that many arguments about creativity are rooted in disagreements about value. Once again, this emphasizes the social dimension in what can all too easily be seen in individualistic cognitive terms, and the tendency for psychological theories to place creativity firmly inside the heads of creators is one of the primary problems. 
it would, of course, be manifestly wrong to dismiss the role of cognitive processes altogether. But as I hope to have shown today, it makes little sense to try to understand such a practical and concrete phenomenon as creativity in musical performance without reference to the physical apparatus, bodies and instruments, in other words, and cultural substance, historically constituted musical materials, by means of which it is expressed. Creativity in performance takes place at the interface between socially constructed musical materials and performance practices, the possibilities and constraints of the human body and the instruments with which it interacts, and the perceptual, motor, and cognitive skills of individual performers, or as the philosopher Andy Clark has put it in the, quote, complex cognitive economy spanning brain, body, and world. Thanks very much.